0: International Short Stories, Volume 2 English Stories, edited by William Patton The Knightsbridge Mystery, by Charles Reed. In Charles II's day, the swan was denounced by the dramatists as a house where unfaithful wives and mistresses met their gallants. But in the next century, when John Clarke was the freeholder, no special imputation of that sort rested on it. It was a country inn with large stables, horse, the Brentford coach, and entertained man and beast on journeys long or short. It had also permanent visitors, especially in summer, for it was near London and yet a rural retreat, meadows on each side, Hyde Park at back, Knightsbridge Green in front. Amongst the permanent lodgers was Mr. Gardner, a substantial man, and Captain Cowan, a retired officer of moderate means, had lately taken two rooms for himself and his son. Mr. Gardiner often joined the company in the public room, but the Cowans kept to themselves upstairs. This was soon noticed, and resented, in that age of few books and free converse. Some said, "Oh, we're not good enough for him.' Others inquired what a half-pay captain had to give himself airs about. Candor interposed— and supplied the climax. Nay, yeah, my masters, that captain may be hiding from duns or from the runners. Now I think, aunt, the yoke mare was robbed scarce a night before his worship came my in ear. But the landlady's tongue ran the other way. Her weight was 16 stone, her sentiments were her interests, and her tongue her tomahawk. Tis pity, said she one day,
1: some folk can't keep their tongues from blackening of their betters. The captain is a civil-spoken gentleman. Lord send there were more of them in these parts. As takes his hat off to me whenever he meets me and pays his reckoning weekly. If he has a mind to be private, what business is that of yours or ours? But curs must bark at their betters.
0: Detraction, thus roughly quelled for certain seconds, revived at intervals whenever Dame Gust's broad back was turned. It was mildly encountered
2: one evening by Mr Gardiner, Nay, good sirs, you mistake the worthy captain. To have fought at Blenheim and Malplaquet, no man has less vanity. Tis for his son he holds aloof. He guards the youth like a mother, and will not have him to hear our taproom jests. He worships the boy. A sullen lout, sirs, but paternal love is blind. He told me once he had loved his wife dearly, and lost her young, and this was all he had of her. And, said he, I'd spill blood like water for him, my own the first. Then, sir, says I, I fear he will give you a sore heart one day. And welcome, says my captain, and his face like iron.
0: Somebody remarked that no man keeps out of company who is good company. But Mr Gardiner parried
2: that dogma. When young master is abed, my neighbour does sometimes invite me to share a bottle and a sprightlier companion I would not desire. Such stories of battles and duels and love intrigues. Now there's an old fox for you, said Juan approvingly. It
0: reconciled him to the captain's decency to find that it was only hypocrisy. I like not a man who wears a mask, hiccoughed a hitherto silent personage, revealing his clandestine drunkenness and unsuspected wisdom at one blow. These various theories were still fermenting in the bosom of the swan, when one day there rode up to the door a gorgeous officer, hot from the minister's leave in scarlet and gold, with an order like a starfish glittering on his breast. His servant, a private soldier, rode behind him, and slipping hastily from his saddle, held his master's horse while he dismounted. Just then Captain Cowan came out for his afternoon walk. He started, and cried out, Colonel Barrington, ah, brother, cried the other, and instantly the two officers embraced, and even kissed each other, for that feminine custom had not yet retired across the channel. And these were soldiers who had fought and bled side by side, and nursed each other in turn. And your true soldier does not nurse by halves. His vigilance and tenderness are an example to women, and he rustleth not." Captain Cowan invited Colonel Barrington to his room, and that warrior marched down the passage after him, single file, with long brass spurs and sabre clinking at his heels, and the establishment ducked and smiled and respected Captain Cowan for the reason we admire the moon. Seated in Cowan's
3: room, the newcomer said heartily, Well, Ned, I come not empty-handed. Here is thy pension at last and handed him a parchment with a seal
0: like a poached egg. Cowan changed colour and thanked him with an emotion he rarely betrayed, and gloated over the precious document.
4: His cast-iron features relaxed, and he said, It comes in the nick of time, for now I can send my dear Jack to college. This led somehow
0: to an exposure of his affairs. He had just £110 a year, derived from the sale of his commission, which he had invested at 15%
4: with a well-known mercantile house in the city. So now, said he, I shall divide it all in three. Jack will want two parts to live at Oxford, and I can do well enough here on one. The rest of the conversation does
0: not matter, so I dismiss it and Colonel Barrington for the time. A few days afterward, Jack went to college, and Captain Cowan reduced his expenses and dined at the shilling ordinary, and indeed took all his moderate repasts in public. Instead of the severe and reserved character he had worn while his son was with him, he now shone out a boon companion, and sometimes kept the table in a roar with his marvellous mimicries of all the characters, male or female, that lived in the inn or frequented it and sometimes held them breathless with adventures, dangers, intrigues, in which a leading part had been played by himself or his friends. He became quite a popular character, except with one or two envious bodies, whom he eclipsed. They revenged themselves by saying it was all braggadocio. His battles had been fought over a bottle, and by the fireside. The district east and west of Knightsbridge had long been infested with footpads, They robbed passengers in the country lanes which then abounded, and sometimes on the King's Highway, from which those lanes offered an easy escape. One moonlit night Captain Cowan was returning home alone from an entertainment at Fulham, when suddenly the air seemed to fill with a woman's screams and cries. They issued from a lane on his right hand. He whipped out his sword and dashed down the lane. It took a sudden turn, and in a moment he came upon three footpads robbing and maltreating an old gentleman and his wife. The old man's sword lay at a distance, struck from his feeble hand. The woman's tongue proved the better weapon, for at least it brought an ally. The nearest robber, seeing the captain come at him with his drawn sword glittering in the moonshine, fired hastily and grazed his cheek, and he was skewered like a frog the next moment. His cry of agony mingled with two shouts of dismay, and the other footpads fled. But even as they turned, Captain Cowan's nimble blade entered the shoulder of one and pierced the fleshy part. He escaped, however, but howling and bleeding. Captain Cowan handed over the lady and the gentleman to the people who flocked to the place. Now the work was done, and the disabled robber to the guardians of the public peace, who arrived last of all. He himself withdrew apart, wiped his sword very carefully and minutely with a white pocket-handkerchief, and then retired. He was so far from parading his exploit that he went round by the park and let himself into the swan with his private key, and was going quietly to bed when the chambermaid met him, and flew up her arms with cries of dismay.
5: Oh, Captain, Captain, look at you, smothered in blood, I shall faint.'
4: Tush, silly wench, said Captain Cowan. I am not hurt.
5: Not hurt, sir? I'm bleeding like a pig. Oh, your cheek, your poor cheek.
0: Captain Cowan put up his hand and found that blood was really welling from his cheek and ear. He looked grave for a moment, then assured her it was but a scratch,
4: and offered to convince her of that. Bring me some lukewarm water, and thou shalt be my doctor. But Barbara, Prithee, publish it not.
0: Next morning an officer of justice inquired after him at the Swan, and demanded his attendance at Bow Street, at two that afternoon, to give evidence against the footpads. This was the very thing he wished to avoid, but there was no evading the summons. The officer was invited into the bar by the landlady, and sang the gallant captain's exploit, with his own variations. The inn began to ring with Cowan's praises. Indeed, there was now but one detractor left, a hostler, Daniel Cox. A drunken fellow of sinister aspect, who had for some time stared and lowered at Captain Cowan, and muttered mysterious things, doubts as to his being a real captain, etc. Which incoherent murmurs of a muddled-headed drunkard were not treated as a rocular by any human creature— Though the stable boy once went so far as to say I sometimes almost thinks as thou art down to know so much, only you don't rightly know what it is a longer being always muddled in liquor. Cowen, who seemed to notice little, but noticed everything, had observed the lowering looks of this fellow and felt he had an enemy. It even made him a little uneasy, though he was too proud and self possessed to show it. With this exception, then, everybody greeted him with hearty compliments and he was cheered out of the inn, marching to Bow Street. Daniel Cox, who, as accidents will happen, was sober that morning, saw him out and then put on his own coat. Take thou
6: charge of the stable, Sam, said he.
0: "Why, where's Miss Gorda this time of day? i be going to Bow Street, said Daniel doggedly. At Bow Street, Captain Cowan was received with great respect, and a seat given him by the sitting magistrate, while some minor cases were disposed of. In due course the highway robbery was called, and proved by the parties, who, unluckily for the accused, had been actually robbed before Cowan interfered. Then the oath was tendered to Cowan, who stood up by the magistrate's side, and disposed with military brevity and exactness to the facts I have related.' but refused to swear to the identity of the individual culprit who stood pale and trembling at the dock. The attorney for the Crown, after pressing in vain, said, Quite right, Captain Cairn. A witness cannot be too scrupulous. He then called an officer, who had found the robber leaning against a railing, fainting from loss of blood, scarce a furlong from the scene of the robbery, and wounded in the shoulder. That let in Captain Cowan's evidence, and the culprit was committed for trial, and soon after peached upon his only comrade at large. The other lay in the hospital at Newgate. The magistrate complimented Captain Cowan on his conduct and his evidence, and he went away universally admired. Yet he was not elated, nor indeed content. Sitting by the magistrate's side, after he had given his evidence, he happened to look around the court and in a distant corner he saw the enormous mottled nose and sinister eyes of Daniel Cox glaring at him with a strange but puzzled expression. Cowan had learned to read faces, and he said to himself,
4: "'What is there in that ruffian's mind about me? Did he know me years ago? "'I cannot remember him. Curse the beast! One would almost think he is cudgelling his drunken memory.' "'I'll keep an eye on you.' He went
0: home thoughtful and discomposed, because this drunkard glowered at him so. The reception he met with at the Swan effaced the impression. He was received with acclamations, and now that publicity was forced on him, he accepted it and revelled in popularity.' About this time he received a letter from his son, enclosing a notice from the college tutor, speaking highly of his ability, good conduct, and devotion to study. This made the father swell with loving pride. Jack hinted modestly that there were unavoidable expenses, and his funds were dwindling. He enclosed an account that showed how the money went. The father wrote back and bade him be easy. He should have every farthing required and speedily. For said he,
4: "'my half-year's interest is due now.'
0: Two days after he had a letter from his man of business, begging him to call. He went with alacrity, making sure his money was waiting for him as usual. His lawyer received him very gravely, and begged him to be seated. He then broke to him some appalling news—' The great house of Brown, Molyneux and Co. had suspended payments at noon the day before, and were not expected to pay a shilling in the pound. Captain Cowan's little fortune was gone, all but his pension of eighty pounds a year. He sat like a man turned to stone. Then he clasped his hands with agony and uttered the words,
4: "'No more, my son.'
0: He rose and left the place like one in a dream. He got down to Knightsbridge, he hardly knew how. At the very door of the inn he fell down in a fit. The people of the inn were round him in a moment, and restoratives freely supplied. His sturdy nature soon revived, but, with a moral and physical shock, his lips were slightly distorted over his clenched teeth. His face, too, was ashy pale. When he came to himself, the first face he noticed was that of Daniel Cox, eyeing him, not with pity, but with puzzled curiosity. Cowan shuddered and closed his eyes to avoid this blighting glare. Then, without opening them, he muttered, What has befallen me?
4: I feel no wound.
1: Lord forbid, sir,
0: said the landlady, leaning over him.
1: Your honour did but swooned for once to show you was born of a woman and not made of naught but steel. Here, you gaping loons and sluts, help the captain to his room amongst you and then go about your business.
0: This order was promptly executed, so far as assisting Captain Cowan to rise. But he was no sooner on his feet than he waved them all from him haughtily and said, Let me be, it is the mind, let me be and he smote his forehead in despair, for now it all came back on him. Then he rushed into the inn and locked himself into his room. Female curiosity buzzed about the doors, but was not admitted until he had recovered his fortitude, and formed a bitter resolution to defend himself and his son against all mankind. At last there came a timid tap, and a mellow voice said,
5: "'It is only me, Captain. Prithee, let me
0: in.' He opened to her, and there was Barbara, with a large tray and a snow-white cloth. She spread a table deftly and uncovered a roast capon, and uncorked a bottle of white port, talking all the time.
5: "'The mistress says you must eat a bit, and drink this good wine for her sake. "'Indeed, sir, twill do you good after your swoon.'
0: With many such encouraging words, she got him to sit down and eat, and then filled his glass and put it to his lips. He could not eat much, but he drank the white port, a wine much prized and purer than the purple vintage of our day. At last came Barbara's post diet
5: Oh, but alack to think of your fainting dead away, oh, Captain, what is the trouble?
0: The tears in Barbara's eye though she was the emissary of Dame Gust's curiosity, and all curiosity herself. Captain Cowan, who had been expecting this question for some time, replied doggedly, "'I've lost the best friend I had in the world.' "'Dear heart,' said Barbara, and a big tear of sympathy that had been gathering ever since she entered the room rolled down her cheeks. She put up a corner of her apron to her eyes."
5: "'Alas, poor soul! I, "'I do know how hard it is to love and lose, "'but bethink you, sir, 'tis the lot of man. "'Our own turn must come, "'and you have your son left to thank God for, "'and a warm friend or two in this place, "'though they be but humble.'
0: Ay, good wench,' said the soldier, "'his iron nature touched for a moment "'by her goodness and simplicity.' "'And none I value more than thee, but leave me a while.' The young woman's honest cheeks reddened at the praise of such a man.
5: "'Your will's my pleasure, sir,'
0: said she, and retired, leaving the capon and the wine. Any little compunction he might have at refusing his confidence to this humble friend did not trouble him long. He looked on women as leaky vessels— and he had firmly resolved not to make his situation worse by telling the base world that he was poor. Many a hard rub had put a fine point on this man of steel. He closed the matter, too, in his
4: own mind. "'I told her no lie. I have lost my best friend, for I have lost my money.' From that day Captain Cowan visited the
0: tap-room no more, and indeed seldom went out by daylight.' He was all alone now, for Mr. Gardiner was gone to Wiltshire to collect his rents. In his solitary chamber, Cowan ruminated his loss and the villainy of mankind, and his busy brain revolved scheme after scheme to repair the impending ruin of his son's prospects. It was there the iron entered his soul. The example of the very footpads he had baffled occurred to him in his more desperate moments. But he fought the temptation down, and in due course one of them was transported, and one hung, the other languished in Newgate. By and by he began to be mysteriously busy, and the door always locked. No clue was ever found to his labours, but bits of melted wax in the fender and a tuft or two of grey hair, and it was never discovered in Knightsbridge that he often begged in the city at dusk in a disguise so perfect that a frequenter of the swan once gave him a groat. Thus did he levy his tax upon the stony place that had undone him. Instead of taking his afternoon walk as heretofore, he would sit disconsolate on the seat of a staircase window that looked into the yard, and so take the air and sun. And it was owing to this new habit— he overheard one day a dialogue in which the foggy voice of the hostler predominated at first. He was running down Captain Cowan to a pot boy. The pot boy stood up for him. That annoyed Cox. He spoke louder and louder
6: the more he was opposed, till at last he bawled out. I tell you, I seen him a-sitting by the judge, and I seen him in the dock.
0: At these words Captain Cowan recoiled, though he was already out of sight and his eye glittered like a basilisk's. But immediately a new voice broke upon the scene, a woman's. Thou foul-mouthed
5: knave, is it for thee to slander men of worship and give thee in a bad name? Remember, I have to but lift my finger to hang thee, so drive me not to it. Be gone to thy horses this moment thou art not fit to be among Christians. Be gone, I say, or it shall be the worse for thee.
0: And she drove him across the yard and followed him up with a current of invectives, eloquent even at a distance, though the words were no longer distinct. And who should this be but the housemaid, Barbara Lamb, so gentle, mellow and melodious before the gentle folk and especially her hero, Captain Cowan. As for Daniel Cox, he cowered, writhed and wriggled away before her, and slipped into the stable. Captain Cowan was now soured by trouble, and this persistent enmity at that fellow roused at last a fixed and deadly hatred in his mind, all the more intense that fear mingled with it. He sounded Barbara, asked her what nonsense that Ruffin had been talking, and what he had done that she could hang him for. But Barbara would not say a malicious word against a fellow-servant in cold blood.
5: I can keep a secret, said she. If he keeps his tongue off you, I'll keep mine.
4: So be it, said Cowan. Then I warn you, I am sick of his insolence, and drunkards must be taught not to make enemies of sober men nor fools of wise men. He said this so bitterly that soothing him she begged him not to
0: trouble about the ravings of a sot. Dear heart, said she, nobody heeds Dan Cox. Some days afterward she told him that Dan had been drinking harder than ever and wouldn't trouble honest folk long. For he had the delusions that go before a drunkard's end. Why he had told the stable-boy he had seen a vision of himself climb over the garden wall and enter the house by the back door,
5: the poor wretch says he knew himself by his bottle nose and his cowskin waistcoat, and to be sure, there is no such nose in the parish. Thank heaven for it, and not many such waistcoats.
0: <laughs> she laughed heartily, but Cowan's lip curled in a venomous sneer
4: he said. "'More likely t'was the knave himself. "'Look to your spoons. "'If such a face as that walks by night.' Barbara turned
0: grave directly. "'He eyed her askant, "'and saw the random shot had gone home. "'Captain Cowan now often slept in the city, "'alleging business. "'Mr. Gardiner wrote from Salisbury, "'ordering his room to be ready, "'and his sheets well aired. "'One afternoon he returned with a bag "'and a small valise.' prodigiously heavy. He had a fire lighted, though it was fine autumn, for he was chilled with his journey, and invited Captain Cowan to sup with him. The latter consented, but begged it might be an early supper,
2: as he must sleep in the city. "'I am sorry for that,' said Gardiner. "'I have a hundred and eighty guineas there in that bag, and a man could get into my room from yours.'
4: "'Not if you lock the middle door,' said Cowan. "'But I can leave the key of my outer door.' This offer was accepted, but still Mr.
0: Gardiner felt uneasy. There had been several robberies at inns, and it was a rainy, gusty night. He was depressed and ill at ease. Then Captain Cowan offered him his pistols and helped him load them, two bullets in each. He also went and fetched him a bottle of the best port, and after drinking one glass with him, hurried away and left his key with him for further security. Mister Gardiner, left to himself, made up a great fire and took a glass or two of the wine. It seemed remarkably heady and raised his spirits. After all, it was only for one night. Tomorrow he would deposit his gold in the bank. He began to unpack his things and put his nightdress to the fire. But by and by he felt so drowsy that he did but take his coat off, put his pistols under the pillow, and lay down on the bed, and fell fast asleep. That night Barbara Lamb awoke twice, thinking each time she heard doors open and shut on the floor below her. But it was a gusty night, and she concluded it was most likely the wind. Still, a residue of uneasiness made her rise at five instead of six and she lighted her tinder and came down with a rushlight. She found Captain Cowan's door wide open. It had been locked when she went to bed. That alarmed her greatly. She looked in. A glance was enough. She cried, THIEVES! (gasps) THIEVES! And in a moment uttered scream upon scream. In an incredibly short time, pale and eager faces of men and women filled the passage. Cowan's room, being open, was entered first. On the floor lay what Barbara had seen at a glance, his portmanteau rifled and the clothes scattered about. The door of communication was ajar, they opened it, and an appalling sight met their eyes. Mr. Gardner was laying in a pool of blood and moaning feebly. There was little hope of saving him, no human body could survive such a loss of the vital fluid. But, it so happened, there was a country surgeon in the house— He stanched the wounds, there were three, and somebody or other had the sense to beg the victim to make a statement. He was unable at first, but under powerful stimulants revived at last, and showed a strong wish to aid justice in avenging him. By this time they had got a magistrate to attend, and he put his ear to the dying man's lips, but others heard, so hushed was the room, and so keen the awe and curiosity of each panting
2: heart. I had gold in my portmanteau and was afraid. I drank a bottle of wine with Captain Cowan and he left me. He lent me his key and his pistols. I locked both doors. I felt very sleepy and lay down. When I woke, a man was leaning over my portmanteau. His back was toward me. I took a pistol, and aimed steadily. It missed fire. The man turned and sprang on me. I had caught up a knife, one we had for supper. I stabbed him with all my force. He wrested it from me, and I felt piercing blows. I am slain. I I am slain. But, sir, did you not see his face at all? Not till he fell on me. But then, very plainly, the moon
7: shone. Pray describe him. Broken hat. Yes. Hairy waistcoat. Yes. Enormous nose. Do you know him?
2: I, the hostler, Cox.
0: There was a groan of horror and a cry for vengeance. Silence!
7: Mr Gardner, you are a dying man. Words may kill. Be careful. Have you any doubts? About what? That the villain was Daniel Cox. None whatever.
0: At these words the men and women, who were glaring with pale faces, and all their senses strained at the dying man and his faint yet trembled denunciation, broke into two bands. Some remained rooted to the place, the rest hurried, with cries of vengeance, in search of Daniel Cox. They were met in the yard by two constables, and rushed first to the stables, not that they hoped to find him there. Of course he had absconded with his booty. The stable door was ajar, they tore it open. The grey dawn revealed Cox, fast asleep on the straw in the first empty stall, and his bottle in the manger. His clothes were bloody, and the man was drunk. They pulled him, cursed him, struck him, and would have torn him in pieces, but the constables interfered. Set him up against the rail, like timber, and searched his bosom, and found a wound. Then turned all his pockets inside out, amidst great expectation, and found 3 halfpence and the key of the stable-door. They ransacked the straw and all the premises, and found nothing. Then, to make him sober and get something out of him, they pumped upon his head till he was very nearly choked. However it told on him, he gasped for breath a while, and rolled his eyes, and then coolly asked them, had they found the villain? They shook their fists
6: at him. Aye, we have found the villain, red-handed. I mean him as prowls about these parts in my waistcoat, and drove his knife into me last night. Wonder he didn't kill me out of hand. Have ye found him amongst ye?
0: This question was met with a volley of jeers and execrations, and the constables pinioned him and bundled him off in a cart to Bow Street to wait examination. Meantime, two Bow Street runners came down with a warrant, and made a careful examination of the premises. The two keys were on the table, Mr. Gardner's outer door was locked. There was no money either, in the portmanteau of Captain Cowan's. Both pistols were found loaded, but no priming in the pan of one that lay on the bed, and the other was primed, but the bullets were above the powder. Bradbury, one of the runners, took particular notice of all. Outside, blood was traced from the stable to the garden wall, and under this wall in the grass a bloody knife was found belonging to the Swan Inn. There was one knife less in Mr. Gardiner's room than had been carried up to his supper. Mr. Gardiner lingered till noon, but never spoke again. The news spread swiftly, and Captain Cowan came home in the afternoon very pale and shocked. He had heard of a robbery and murder at the Swan, and came to know more. The landlady had told him all that had transpired, and that the villain Cox was in prison.
4: Cowan listened thoughtfully, and said, "'Cox? No doubt he is a knave, but murder? I should never have suspected him of that.' The landlady pooh-poohed his doubts.
1: "'Why, sir?' The poor gentleman knew him and wounded him in self-defence and the rogue was found a-bleeding from that very wound and my knife has done the murder, not a stone's throw from him has done it, which was that Dan Cox, and he'll swing for it, please God.
0: Then, changing her tone, she said solemnly,
1: You'll come and see him, sir?
0: Yes, said Cowan resolutely, with scarce a moment's hesitation. The landlady led the way and took the keys out of her pocket and opened Cowan's door.
1: We keep all locked,
0: said she, half apologetically.
1: The magistrate bade us, and everything as we found it, God help us. There, look at your portmanteau. I wish you may not have been robbed as well.
4: No matter, said he.
1: But it matters to me, for the credit of the house.
0: Then she gave him the key of the inner door, and waved her hand toward it, and sat down, and began to cry. Cowan went in and saw the appalling sight. He returned quickly, looking like a ghost, and muttered, This is a terrible business.
1: It's a bad business for me and all. He have robbed you too.
4: Captain Cowan examined his trunk carefully. Nothing to speak of. I've lost eight guineas on my gold watch. There, 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 cried the landlady. What does that matter, dame? He has lost his life.
1: Aye, poor soul, but 2 not bring him back, you being robbed and all. Was ever such an unfortunate woman? Murder and robbery in my house? Travellers will shun it like a pest house. And the new landlord, he only wanted a good excuse to take it down altogether.
0: This was followed by more sobbing and crying. Cowan took her downstairs into the bar, and comforted her. They had a glass of spirits together, and he encouraged the flow of her egotism, till at last she fully persuaded herself it was her calamity that one man was robbed and another murdered in her house. Cowan, always a favourite, quite won her heart by falling into this view of the matter, and when he told her he must go back to the city again, for he had important business, and besides he had no money left, either in his pockets or his rifled valise. She encouraged him to go, and said kindly, indeed it was no place for him now. It was very good of him to come back at all, but both apartments should be scoured and made decent in a very few days, and a new carpet down in Mr Gardiner's room. So Cowan went back to the city, and left his notable woman to mop up her murder. At Bow Street next morning, in answer to the evidence of his guilt, Cox told a tale which the magistrate said was even more ridiculous than most of the stories uneducated criminals get up on such occasions. With this single comment, he committed Cox for trial. Everybody was of the magistrate's opinion, except a single Bow Street runner, the same who had already examined the premises. This man suspected Cox— Bird had one qualm of doubt founded on the place where he had discovered the knife, and the circumstance of the blood being traced from that place to the stable, and not from the inn to the stable. And, on a remark, Cox had made to him in the cart. I
6: don't belong to the house. I hain't got no keys to go in and out tonight. And if I took a hatful of gold, I'd be off with it to another country, wouldn't you? Him as took the gentleman's money, he knew where it was and he have got it. I didn't, and I hadn't.
0: Bradbury came down to the swan and asked the landlady a question or two. She gave him short answers. He then told her that he wished to examine the wine that had come down from Mr Gardner's room. The landlady looked him in the face and said it had been drunk by the servants or thrown away long ago. I have my doubts about that said he,
1: and welcome,
0: said she, then he wished to examine the keyholes,
1: no, there has been prying enough into my house,
7: said he angrily, you are obstructing justice, it is very suspicious,
1: it is you that is suspicious and a mischief maker into the bargain, how do I know what you might put into my wine and my keyholes and say you found it? You are well known, you Bow Street runners, for your hanky-panky tricks. Have you got a search warrant to throw more discredit upon my house? No? Then pack and learn the law before you teach it to me.
0: Bradbury retired bitterly indignant and his indignation strengthened his faint doubt of Cox's guilt. He sent a friend to watch the swan and he himself gave his mind to the whole case and visited Cox in Newgate three times before his trial. The next novelty was that legal assistance was provided for Cox by a person who expressed compassion for his poverty and inability to defend himself, guilty or not guilty, and that benevolent person was Captain Cowan. In due course Daniel Cox was arraigned at the bar of the Old Bailey for robbery and murder. The deposition of the murdered man was put in by the Crown, and the witness sworn who heard it, and Captain Cowan was called to support a portion of it. He swore that he supped with the deceased and loaded one pistol for him, while Mr Gardiner loaded the other, lent him the key of his own door for further security, and himself slept in the city. The judge asked where, and he said, 13 Farringdon Street. It was elicited from him that he had provided counsel for the prisoner. His evidence was very short and to the point. It did not directly touch the accused, and the defendant's counsel, in spite of his client's eager desire, declined to cross-examine Captain Cowan. He thought a hostile examination of so respectable a witness, who brought nothing home to the accused, would only raise more indignation against his client. The prosecution was strengthened by the reluctant evidence of Barbara Lamb. She deposed that three years ago Cox had been detected by her stealing money from a gentleman's table in the Swan Inn, and she gave the details. The judge asked her whether this was at night—
5: No, my lord. At about four of the clock. He's never in the house at night. The mistress can't abide him.
8: Has he any key of the house?
5: Oh dear, no, my lord.
0: The rest of the evidence for the crown is virtually before the listener. For the defence, it was proved that the man was found drunk with no money nor keys upon him, and that the knife was found under the wall, and the blood was traceable from the wall to the stable. Bradbury, who proved this, tried to get in about the wine, but this was stopped as irrelevant.
8: There is only one person under suspicion,
0: said the judge rather sternly. As counsel were not allowed in that day to make speeches to the jury, but only to examine and cross-examine and discuss points of law, Daniel Cox had to speak in his own defence.
6: My lord, said he, it was my double done it.
8: Your what?
6: asked my lord, a little peevishly. My double, there's a rogue prowls about the swan at nights, which you couldn't tell him from me. <laughs> You needn't to laugh me to the gallows. I tell you, he have got a nose like mine. (laughs) Keep silence in court, on pain of imprisonment, demanded the clerk of arraigns. And he have got a waistcoat, the very spit of mine, and a tumble-down hat such as I do wear. I saw him go by and let himself into the swan with a key, and I told Sam next morning. Who is Sam Pot? Why, my stable boy, to be sure. Is he in court? I don't know. Oi, there he is. Then you'd better call him. Oi, Sam.
8: Sam. Here be I. (laughs) Keep silence
0: in court. The judge explained calmly that to call a witness meant to put him in the box and swear him and that although it was irregular, yet he should allow Pot to be sworn, if it would do the prisoner any good. Prisoner's counsel said he had no wish to swear Mr. Pot. "'Well,
8: Mr. Gurney,'
0: said the judge,
8: "'I don't think he could do you
0: any harm,' meaning in so desperate a case. Thereupon Sam Pot was sworn, and deposed. that Cox had told him about this double.
8: "'When?' "'Often and often.' "'Before the murder?'
0: "'Long before that.' "'Counsel for the Crown.' "'Did you ever see this double?' "'Not I.' "'I thought not.' Daniel Cox went on to say that on the night of the murder he was up with a sick horse, and he saw his double let himself out of the inn the back way, and then turn round and close the door softly. So he slipped out to meet him. But the double saw him, and made for the garden wall. He ran up, and caught him with one leg over the wall, and seized a black bag he was carrying off. The figure dropped it, and he heard a lot of money chink, that thereupon he cried, THIEVES! and seized the man, but immediately received a blow, and lost his senses for a time. When he came to, the man and the bags were both gone, and he felt so sick that he staggered into the stable and drank a pint of neat brandy. And he remembered no more till they pumped on him and told him he had robbed and murdered a gentleman inside the Swan Inn.
6: "'What they can't tell me,' said Daniel, "'is how I could know who has got the money and who hasn't. "'I keeps the stables, not the inn.' And where be my keys to open and shut the swan? I never had none. And where's the gentleman's money? T'was somebody in the inn has done it, for to have the money, and when you find the money, you'll find the man.
0: The prosecuting counsel ridiculed this defence, and, inter Alia, asked the jury whether they thought it was a double the witness lamb had caught robbing in the inn three years ago. The judge summed up very closely giving the evidence of every witness. He showed it was beyond doubt that Mr Gardiner returned to the inn with money, having collected his rents in Wiltshire, and this was known in the inn, and proved by several, and might have transpired in the yard or the tap-room. What follows is a mere synopsis of his
8: charge. The unfortunate gentleman took Captain Cowan, a respectable person, his neighbour in the inn, into his confidence, and revealed his uneasiness. Captain Cowan swore that he supped with him, but could not stay all night, most unfortunately. But he encouraged him, left him his pistols, and helped him load them. At this point his lordship read the dying man's deposition. Then he continued his summary. The person thus solemnly denounced was found in the stable bleeding from a recent wound, which seems to connect him at once with the deed as described by the dying man. But here the chain is no longer perfect. A knife taken from the swan was found under the garden wall, and the first traces of blood commenced there, and continued to the stable, and were abundant on the straw and on the person of the accused. This was proved by the constable and others. No money was found on him, and no keys that could have opened any outer doors of the Swan Inn. The accused had, however, three years before, been guilty of a theft from a gentleman in the inn, which negatives his pretense that he always confined himself to the stables. It did not, however, appear that on the occasion of the theft, he had unlocked any doors or possessed the beams. The witness for the crown, Barbara Lamb, was clear on that. The prisoner's own solution of the mystery was not very credible. He said he had a double, or a person wearing his clothes and appearance, and he had seen this person prowling about long before the murder, and had spoken of the double to one pot. Pot deposed that Cox had spoken of this double more than once, but admitted he never saw the double with his own eyes. This double, says the accused, on the fatal night, let himself out of the Swan Inn and escaped to the garden wall. There, Cox came up with this mysterious person, and a scuffle ensued in which a bag was dropped and gave the sound of coin. And then Cox held the man and cried thieves, but presently received a wound and fainted. And on recovering himself, staggered to the stables and drank a pint of brandy. The story sounds ridiculous, and there is no direct evidence to back it. But there is a circumstance that lends some colour to it. There was one blood-stained instrument, and no more, found on the premises, and that knife answers to the description given by the dying man, and, indeed, may be taken to be the very knife missing from his room. And this knife was found under the garden wall, and there the blood commenced and was traced to the stable. Here, to my mind, lies the defence. Look at the case on all sides, gentlemen. An undoubted murder done by hands no suspicion resting on any known person but the prisoner, a man who had already robbed in the inn, a confident recognition by one whose deposition is legal evidence, but evidence we cannot cross-examine, and a recognition by moonlight only, and in the heat of a struggle. If, on this evidence weakened not a little by the position of the knife and the traces of blood and met by the prisoner's declaration, which accords with that single branch of the evidence, you have a doubt, it is your duty to give the prisoner the full benefit of that doubt, as I have endeavoured to do. And if you have no doubt, why then you have only to support the law and protect the lives of peaceful citizens. Whoever has committed this crime, it certainly is an alarming circumstance that in a public inn surrounded by honest people guarded by locked doors, and armed with pistols, a peaceful citizen can be robbed like this of his money and his life. And
0: so the judge concluded his summary. The jury saw a murder at an inn, an accused who had already robbed in that inn, and was denounced as his murderer by the victim. The verdict seemed to them to be cocks of impunity. They all slept at inns, a double they had never seen, undetected accomplices they had all heard of. They waited twenty minutes and brought in their verdict. Guilty. The judge put on his black cap and condemned Daniel Cox to be hanged by the neck till he was dead. After the trial was over and the condemned man led back to prison to await his execution... "'Bradbury went straight to 13 Farrington Street "'and inquired for Captain Cowan.
9: "'No such name here,'
0: said the good woman of the house. "'But you keep lodgers?'
9: "'Nay, we keep but one, and he is no captain. "'He's a city clerk.'
7: "'Well, madam, it is not idle curiosity, I assure you. "'But was not the lodger before him Captain Cowan?'
9: Laws, no, it was a parson.' "'Your rake helly captains wouldn't suit the like of us. "'Twas a reverend clerk, a grave old gentleman. "'He wasn't a very well-to-do. "'I think his cassocks was worn. "'But he paid his way.'
7: "'Keep late hours?'
9: "'Not when he was in town, but he had a country cure.'
7: "'Then you have let him in after midnight?'
9: "'Nay, I keep no such hours. "'I lent him a passkey. "'He came in and out from the country when he chose.' I would have you to know he was an old man, and a sober man, and an honest man. I'd wager my life on that. And excuse me, sir, but who be you that do catechise me to about my lodgers?
7: I am an officer, madam. The simple woman turned
0: pale and clasped her hands.
9: An officer?
0: she cried. Alack! What have I done now?
7: Why nothing, madam, said the wily Bradbury. An officer's business is to protect such as you, not to trouble you, for all the world. There now, I'll tell you where the shoe pinches. This Captain Cowan has just sworn in a court of justice that he slept here on the 15th of last October.
9: He never did then. Our good parson had no acquaintances in the town. Not a soul ever visited him.
0: Mother, said a young girl peeping in.
9: I think he knew somebody of that very name. He did ask me once to post a letter for him, and it was to some man of worship, and the name was Cowan. Yes, Cowan, t'was, I'm sure of it. By the same token, he never gave me another letter, and that made me pay the more attention.
7: Jane, you're too curious. And I'm very much obliged to you, my little maid, and also to you, madam. And so took his leave. One evening, all of a sudden, Captain Cowan
0: ordered a prime horse at the Swan, strapped his valise on before him, and rode out of the yard post-haste. He went without drawing bridle to Clapham, and then looked round him, and seeing no other horseman near, trotted gently round into the borough, then into the city, and slept at an inn in Holborn. He had bespoken a particular room beforehand, a little room he frequented. He entered it with an air of anxiety, but this soon vanished after he had examined the floor carefully. His horse was ordered at five o'clock next morning. He took a glass of strong waters at the door to fortify his stomach, but breakfasted at Uxbridge, and fed his good horse. He dined at Beaconsfield, halted at Tame, and supped with his son at Oxford. Next day paid all the young man's debts and spent a week with him. His conduct was strange, boisterously gay, and sullenly despondent by turns. During the week came an unexpected visitor, General Sir Robert Barrington. This officer was going out to America to fill an important office. He had something in view for young Cowan, and came to judge quietly of his capacity. But he did not say anything at the time, for fear of exciting hopes he might possibly disappoint. However, he was much taken with the young man. Oxford had polished him, his modest reticence until invited to speak recommended him to older men, especially as his answers were judicious when invited to give his opinion. The tutors also spoke very highly of him. "'You may well love that boy,' said General Barrington to the father. "'God bless you for praising him,' said the other.
4: "'Aye, I love him too well.'
0: Soon after the general left, Cowen changed some gold for notes, and took his departure for London, having first sent word of his return. He meant to start after breakfast, and make one day of it, but he lingered with his son, and did not cross Magdalen Bridge till one o'clock. This time he rode through Dorchester, Benson, and Henley, and, as it grew dark, resolved to sleep at Maidenhead. Just after Hurley Bottom, At four crossroads, three highwaymen spurred on him from right and left. "'Your money or your life!' He whipped a pistol out of his holster and pulled at the nearest head in a moment. The pistol missed fire. The next moment a blow from the butt-end of a horse pistol dazed him, and he was dragged off his horse, and his valise emptied in a minute." Before they had done with him, however, there was a clatter of hooves, and the robbers sprang to their nags, and galloped away for the bare life, as a troop of yeomanry rode up. The thing was so common, the newcomers read the situation at a glance, and some of the best-mounted gave chase. The others attended to Captain Cowan, caught his horse, strapped on his valise, and took him with them into Maidenhead, his head aching, his heart sickening, and raging by turns. "'all his gold gone, nothing left but a few one-pound notes "'that he had sewn into the lining of his coat. "'He reached the swan next day in a state of sullen despair.
4: "'A curse is on me! "'My pistols misfire, my gold gone!' "'He was welcomed warmly. "'He stared with surprise.
0: Barbara led the way to his old room and opened it. "'He started
4: back. "'Not there!' He said with a shudder.
5: Alack, Captain! We have kept it for you. Sure you are not feared?
4: No, said he doggedly. No hope, no fear.
0: She stared, but said nothing. He had hardly gone into the room when click a key was turned in the door of communication. A traveller there?
4: said he. Then bitterly, Things are soon forgotten in an inn.
0: Not by me
4: said Barbara solemnly.
5: But you know our dame, she can't let money go by her. Tis our best room, mostly, and nobody would use it that knows the place. He is a stranger. He is from the wars. We'll have it, he is English, but talks foreign. He's civil enough when he is sober, but when he has got a drop, he does maunder away, to be sure, and sings such songs I
4: never. How long has he been here?
5: Five days, and the mistress hopes he will stay as many more, just to break the spell.
4: He can stay or go. I am in no humour for company. I have been robbed, girl. You? Robbed, sir? Not openly, I am sure. Openly, but by numbers, three of them. I should soon have sped one, but my pistol snapped fire just like his. There, leave me, girl. Fate is against me, and a curse upon me bubbled out of my fortune in the city, robbed of my gold upon the road. To be honest is to be a fool.
0: He flung himself on the bed with a groan of anguish, and the ready tears ran down soft Barbara's cheeks. She had tact, however, in her humble way, and did not prattle to a strong man in a moment of wild distress. She just turned and cast a lingering glance of pity on him, and went to fetch him food and wine. She had often seen an unhappy man, the better for eating and drinking. When she was gone, he cursed himself for his weakness in letting her know his misfortune. They would be all over the house soon.
4: Why, that fellow next door must have heard me bawl them out. I have lost my head, and I never needed it more. "'Barbara returned
0: with the cold powdered beef and carrots "'and a bottle of wine she had paid for herself. "'She found him sullen, but composed. "'He made her solemnly promise not to mention his losses. "'She consented readily and said, "'You know I can hold my tongue.' "'When he had eaten and drunk, he felt stronger. "'He resolved to put a question to her. "'How about that poor fellow?' "'She looked puzzled a moment.' Then turned pale, and said solemnly, "'Tis for this day week, I hear. Twas to be last week, but the king did respite him for a fortnight.' "'Ah, indeed. Do you know why?' "'Now in our day the respite is very rare. "'A criminal is hanged or reprieved. "'But at the period of our story, "'men were often respited for short or long periods, "'yet suffered at last.' One poor wretch was respited for two years, yet executed. This respite, therefore, was nothing unusual, and Cowen, though he looked thoughtful, had no downright suspicion of anything so serious to himself as really lay beneath the surface of this not unusual occurrence. I shall, however, let the listener know more about it. The judge, in reporting the case, notified to the proper authority that he desired His Majesty to know he was not entirely at ease about the verdict. There was a lacuna in the evidence against this prisoner. He stated the flaw in a very few words, but he did not suggest any remedy. Now the public clamoured for the man's execution, that travellers might be safe. The King's adviser thought that if the judge had serious doubts, it was his business to tell the jury so. The order for execution issued. Three days after this, the judge received a letter from Bradbury, which I give verbatim.
7: My Lord, forgive my writing to you in a case of blood. There is no other way. Daniel Cox was not defended. Counsel went against his wish, and would not throw suspicion on any other... That made it Cox or nobody. But there was a man in the inn whose conduct was suspicious. He furnished the wine that made the victim sleepy and I must tell you the landlady would not let me see the remnant of the wine. She did everything to baffle me and defeat justice. He loaded two pistols so that neither could go off. He's got a pass key and goes in and out of the swan at all hours. He provided counsel for Daniel Cox. That could only be through compunction. He swore in court that he slept that night at 13 Farringdon Street. Your Lordship will find it on your notes. For to us you put the question, and, methinks, heaven inspired you. An hour after the trial, I was at 13 Farringdon Street. No cowan and no captain had ever lodged there, nor slept there. Present lodger, a city clerk, lodger at date of murder, an old clergyman that said he had a country cure and got the simple body to trust him with a pass-key. So he came in and out at all hours of the night. This man was no clerk, but as I believe, the cracksman that did the job at the Swan. My lord, there is always two in a job of this sort, the professional man and the confederate. Cowan was the confederate, hocus the wine, loaded the pistols, and lent his pass-key to the cracksman. The cracksman opened the door with his tools unless Cowan made him duplicate keys. Neither of them intended violence, or they would have used their own weapons. The wine was drugged expressly to make that needless. The cracksman, instead of a black mask, put on a calfskin waistcoat and a bottle nose, and that passed muster for Cox by Moonlight. It puzzled Cox by Moonlight and deceived Gardner by Moonlight. For the love of God, get me a respite for the innocent man, and I will undertake to bring the crime home to the cracksman and to his confederate cowan. Bradbury signed this with his name and quality. The judge was
0: not sorry to see the doubt of his own wariness had raised, so powerfully confirmed. He sent this missive on to the minister, with the remark that he had received a letter which ought not to have been sent to him, but to those in whose hands the prisoner's fate rested. He thought it his duty, however, to transcribe from his notes the question he had put to Captain Cowan, and his reply that he had slept at 13 Farrington Street on the night of the murder, and also the substance of the prisoner's defence, with the remark that, as stated by that uneducated person, it had appeared ridiculous, but that after studying this Bow Street officer's statement, and assuming them to be in the main correct, it did not appear ridiculous, but only remarkable, and it reconciled all the undisputed facts— whereas that Cox was the murderer, was and ever must remain irreconcilable with the position of the knife and the track of the blood. Bradbury's letter and the above comment found their way to the king, and he granted what was asked, a respite. Bradbury and his fellows went to work to find the old clergyman, alias Cracksman, but he had melted away without a trace, and they had got no other clue. But during Cowan's absence they got a traveller, a disguised agent, into the inn, who found relics of wax in the keyholes of Cowan's outer door, and of the door of communication. Bradbury sent this information in two letters, one to the judge and one to the minister. But this did not advance him much. He had long been sure that Cowan was in it. It was the professional hand, the actual robber and murderer he wanted. The days succeeded one another. Nothing was done. He lamented. Too late. He had not applied for a reprieve or even a pardon. He deplored his own presumption in assuming that he could unravel such a mystery entirely. His busy brain schemed night and day. He lost his sleep and even his appetite. At last, in sheer despair, he proposed to himself a new solution, and acted upon
7: it in the dark, and with consummate subtlety. For, he said to himself, I'm in deeper water than I thought. Lord, how they skim a case at the Old Bailey. They take a pond for a puddle, and go to fathom it with a forefinger.
0: Captain Cowan sank into a settled gloom, but he no longer courted solitude. It gave him the horrors. He preferred to be in company, though he no longer shone in it. He made acquaintance with his neighbour, and rather liked him. The man had been in the commissariat department, and seemed half surprised at the honour a captain did him in conversing with him. But he was well versed in all the incidents of the late wars, and Cowan was glad to go with him into the past, for the present was dead, and the future horrible. This Mr Cutler so deferential when sober, was inclined to be more familiar when in his cups, and that generally ended in his singing and talking to himself in his own room in the absurdest way. He never went out without a black leather case strapped across his back like a dispatch box. When joked and asked as to the contents, he used to say, Papers, papers, curtly. One evening, being rather the worse for liquor, he dropped it, and there was a metallic sound. This was immediately commented on by the wags of the company. That fell heavy for paper, said one. And there was a ring, said another. Come, unload thy back, comrade, and show us thy papers. Cutler was sobered in a moment and looked scared. Cowan observed this and quietly left the room. He went upstairs to his own room and mounted on a chair he found a thin place in the partition and made an eyelet hole. That very night he made use of this with good effect. Cutler came up to bed singing and whistling, but presently threw down something heavy and was silent. Cowan spied and saw him kneel down, draw from his bosom a key suspended round his neck by a ribbon and open the dispatch box. There were papers in it, but only to deaden the sound of a great many new guineas that glittered in the light of the candle and seemed to fire and fill the receptacle. Cutler looked furtively round, plunged his hands in them, took them out by handfuls, admired them, kissed them, and seemed to worship them, locked them up again, and put the black case under his pillow. While they were glaring in the light, Cowan's eyes flashed with unholy fire. He clutched his hands at them where he stood, but they were inaccessible. He sat down despondent, and cursed the injustice of fate. Bubbled out of money in the city, robbed on the road, but when another had money, it was safe. He left his keys in the locks of both doors, and his gold never quitted him. Not long after this discovery, he got a letter from his son, telling him that the college bill for battles or commons had come in, "'and he was unable to pay it. "'He begged his father to disperse it, "'or he should lose credit. "'This tormented the unhappy father, "'and the proximity of gold tantalised him so "'that he bought a phial of laudanum
4: "'and secreted it about his person. "'Better die,' said he, "'and leave my boy to Barrington. "'Such a legacy from his dead comrade will be sacred, "'and he has the world at his feet.' He even ordered a bottle of red port, and kept it by him to swill the laudanum
0: in, and so get drunk and die. But when it came to the point, he faltered. Meantime, the day drew near for the execution of Daniel Cox. Bradbury had undertaken too much. His cracksman seemed to the king's advisers as shadowy as the double of Daniel Cox. The evening before that fatal day, Cowan came to a wild resolution. He would go to Tyburn at noon, which was the hour fixed, and would die under that man's gibbet. So was this powerful mind unhinged. This desperate idea was uppermost in his mind when he went up to his bedroom. But he resisted. No, he would never play the coward while there was a chance left on the cards. While there is life, there is hope.' "'He seized the bottle, uncorked it, and tossed off a glass. "'It was potent, and tingled through his veins, and warmed his heart. "'He set the bottle down before him. "'He filled another glass, but before he put it to his lips, "'jocund noises were heard coming up the stairs, "'and noisy, drunken voices, "'and two boon-companions of his neighbour Cutler, "'who had a double-bedded room opposite him, parted with him for the night.' He was not drunk enough, it seems, for he kept demanding, "'To the bottle!' His friends, however, were of a different opinion. They bundled him into his room, and locked him in from the other side, and shortly after burst into their own room, and were more garrulous than articulate. Cutler, thus disposed of, kept saying and shouting and whining that he must have, "'To the bottle!' In short, anyone at a distance would have thought he was announcing sixteen different propositions. So various were the accents of anger, grief, expostulation, deprecation, supplication, imprecation, and whining tenderness, in which he declared he must have, "'To the bottle!' At last he came bump against the door of communication. "Neighbor," said he, "'Your Worship, I mean great man of war!' Well, sir, let's up to the bottle. Cowan's eyes flashed. He took out his phial of laudanum and emptied about a fifth part of it into the bottle. Cutler whined at the door. The open door, your worship. I left up to the bottle.
4: <coughs> Why? The key is on your side," said Cowan.
0: A feeble-minded laugh at the discovery. A fumbling with the key, and the door opened. And Cutler stood in the doorway with his cravat disgracefully loose, and his visage wreathed in foolish smiles. His eyes joggled, he pointed with a mixture of surprise and low cunning at the table.
4: Why, well, there's tis or the bottle. Let's have 'em. Nay. I drain no bottles at this time. One glass suffices me. I drink your health. He raised his glass. Cutler
0: grabbed the bottle and said brutally, "'and I'll drink yours.' "'And shut the door with a slam, "'but was too intent on his prize to lock it. Cowan sat and listened. "'He heard the wine gurgle, "'and the drunkard draw a long breath of delight. "'Then there was a pause, "'then a snatch of song rather melodious "'and more articulate than Mr. Cutler's "'recent attempts at discourse. "'Then another gurgle and another loud, ah. Oh then a vocal attempt which broke down by degrees, then a snore, then a somnolent remark.
8: All right.
0: Then a staggering on to his feet, then a swaying to and fro, and a subsiding against the door. Then, by and by, a little reel at the bed, and a fall flat on the floor. Then, stertorous breathing. Cowan sat still at the keyhole some time, then took off his boots and softly mounted his chair and applied his eye to the peephole. Cutler was lying on his stomach between the table and the bed. Cowan came to the door on tiptoe and turned the handle gently. The door yielded. He lost nerve for the first time in his life. What horrible shame should the man come to his senses and see him. He stepped back into his own room. "'ripped up his portmanteau, "'and took out, from between the leather and the lining, "'a disguise and a mask. "'He put them on. "'Then he took his loaded cane, "'for he thought to himself, "'No more stabbing in that room.' "'And he crept through the door like a cat. "'The man lay breathing sturtlessly, and his lips blowing out at every exultation, like lifeless lips urged by a strong wind, so that Cowan began to fear, not that he might wake, but that he might die. It flashed across him he should have to leave England. What he came to do seemed now wonderfully easy— he took the key by its ribbon, carefully off the sleeper's neck, unlocked the dispatch-box, took off his hat, put the gold into it, locked the dispatch-box, replaced the key, took up his handful of money, and retired slowly on tiptoe as he came. He had but disposed his stick and the booty on the bed, when the sham drunkard pinned him from behind, and uttered a shrill whistle. With a fierce snarl, Cowan whirled his captor round like a feather, and dashed with him against the post of his own door, stunning the man so that he relaxed his hold, and Cowan whirled him round again, and kicked him in the stomach so feely that he was doubled up out of the way, and contributed nothing more to the struggle except his last meal. At this very moment two Bow Street runners rushed madly upon Cowan through the door of communication. He met one in full career, with a blow so tremendous that it sounded through the house, and drove him all across the room against the window, where he fell senseless. The other he struck rather short, and though the blood spurted and the man staggered, he was on him again in a moment, and pinned him. Cowan, a master of pugilism, got his head under his left shoulder, and pummeled him cruelly, but the fellow managed to hold on till a powerful foot kicked in the door at a blow, and Bradbury himself sprang on Captain Cowan, with all the fury of a tiger. He seized him by the throat from behind, and throttled him, and set his knee to his back. The other, though mauled and bleeding, whipped out a short rope, and pinioned him in a turn of the hand. Then all stood panting, "'but the disabled man, "'and once more the passage and the room "'were filled with pale faces and panting bosoms. "'Lights flashed on the scene, and instantly loud screams from the landlady and her maids, "'and as they screamed they pointed with trembling fingers. "'And well they might. "'There, caught red-handed in an act of robbery and violence, "'a few steps from the place of the mysterious murder "'stood the stately figure of Captain Cowan.' And the mottled face and bottle nose of Daniel Cox condemned to die in just
7: twelve hours' time. Ay, scream ye fools! Roared Bradbury. That couldn't see a church by daylight. Then, shaking his fist at Cowan, thou villain! Tisn't one man you have murdered; tis two. But please God, I'll save one of them yet and hang you in his place. Way there, not a moment to lose. In another
0: minute, they were all in the yard and a hackney coach sent for. Captain Cowan said
4: to Bradbury, This thing on my face is choking me. Oh, better that you have been choked, but Tyburn and all. Hang me. Don't pillory me. I've served my country. Bradbury removed the wax
0: mask. He said afterward he had no power to refuse the villain. He was so grand
4: and gentle. Thank you, sir. Now what can I do for you? Save Daniel Cox? Aye, do that and I'll forgive you. Give
0: me a sheet of paper. Bradbury, impressed by the man's tone of sincerity, placed paper and ink before him. He addressed to General Barrington,
4: in attendance on his Majesty, these. General, see his Majesty betimes. Tell him from me that Daniel Cox, condemned to die at noon, is innocent... "'and get him a reprieve. "'Oh, Barrington, come to your lost comrade. "'The bear will tell you where I am. "'I cannot. "'Edward Cowan. "'Send a man you can trust to Windsor with that, "'and take me to my most welcome death.' A trusty officer was dispatched to Windsor, and in about an hour
0: Cowan was lodged in Newgate. All that night... "'Radbury laboured to save the man that was condemned to die. "'He knocked up the sheriff of Middlesex and told him all. "'Don't come to me,' said the sheriff. "'Go to the minister.' "'He rode to the minister's house. "'The minister was up. "'His wife gave a ball, windows blaring, shadows dancing, music's lights. "'Night turned into day. "'Radbury knocked. "'The door flew open and revealed a line of bed-designed footmen.' "'dotted at intervals up the stairs.
7: "'I must see my lord. "'Life or death, I'm an officer from Bow Street.' "'You
4: can't see, my lord. "'He is entertaining the protean ambassador in his suite.'
7: "'I must see him, or an innocent man will die tomorrow. "'Tell him so. Here's a guinea.' "'Is there? Step aside here.' "'He waited in
0: torments till the message went through "'the gamut of lackeys and got more or less mutilated to the minister.' He detached a buffet who proposed to Mr Bradbury to call
7: at the Doolittle office in Westminster next morning. No, said Bradbury, I don't leave the house till I see him. Innocent blood shall not be spilled for want of a word in time.
0: The Buffer retired, and in came a duffer,
7: who said the occasion was not convenient. Aye, but it is, and if my Lord is not here in five minutes, I'll go upstairs and tell my tale before them all and see if they are all hairdressers' dummies without heart or conscience or sense. In five minutes in came a gentleman, with an order on his
0: breast, and said, You are a Bow Street officer?
7: Yes, my lord. Name? Bradbury. You say the man condemned to die tomorrow is innocent? Yes, my lord. How do you know? Just taken the real culprit. When is the other to suffer? Twelve tomorrow. Seems short time.
4: Hmm.
0: Will you be good enough to take a line to the sheriff? Form
7: a message tomorrow?
0: The actual message ran. Delay execution of Cox till we hear from Windsor. Bearer will give reasons. With this Bradbury hurried away, not to the sheriff, but to the prison, and infected the jailer and the chaplain and all the turnkeys with pity for the condemned and the spirit of delay. Bradbury breakfasted. "'and washed his face, and off to the sheriff. "'Sheriff was gone out. "'Bradbury hunted him from pillar to post "'and could find him nowhere. "'He was at last obliged to go and wait for him at Newgate. "'He arrived at the stroke of twelve "'to superintend the execution. "'Bradbury put the minister's note into his hand.
7: "'This is no use. "'I want an order from His Majesty, "'or the Privy Council at least.' "'You have all the day for it,' said Bradbury. All the day? I can't be all the day hanging a single man. My time is precious, gentlemen.
0: Then, his bark being worse than his
7: bite, he said, I shall come again at four o'clock, and then, if there is no news from Windsor, the law must take its course.
0: He never came again, though, for even as he turned his back to retire, there was a faint cry from the farthest part of the crowd, a paper raised on a hussar's lance, and, as the mob fell back on every aid, a royal aide-de-camp rode up, followed closely by the mounted runner, and delivered to the sheriff a reprieve under the signed manual of His Majesty George I. At two p.m. of the same day, General Sir Robert Barrington reached Newgate and saw Captain Cowan in private. That unhappy man fell on his knees and made a confession. Barrington was horrified and turned as cold as
3: ice to him. He stood erect as a statue. "'A soldier to rob?' said he. "'Murder was bad enough, but to rob?'
0: cowan with his head and hands all hanging down could only say faintly
4: i have been robbed and ruined and it was for my boy Ah oh, me, what will become of him i have lost my soul for him and now he will be ruined and disgraced by me who would have died for him the strong man shook with agony and his
0: head and hands almost touched the ground Sir Robert Barrington looked at him and pondered.
3: No, said he, relenting a little. That is the one thing I can do for you. I had made up my mind to take your son to Canada as my secretary, and I will take him. But he must change his name. I sail next Thursday.
0: The broken man stirred wildly, then started up and blessed him, and from that moment the wild hope entered his breast that he might keep his son unstained by his crime, and even ignorant of it. Barrington said that was impossible, but yielded to the father's prayers, and consented to act as if it was possible. He would send a messenger to Oxford, with money and instructions to bring the young man up and put him on board the ship at Gravesend. This difficult scheme, once conceived, there was not a moment to be lost. Barrington sent down a mounted messenger to Oxford with money and instructions. Cowan sent for Bradbury and asked him when he was to appear at Bow Street.
4: Tomorrow,
7: I suppose.
4: Do me a favour. Get all your witnesses, make the case complete, and show me only once to the public before I am tried. Well, Captain... You were square with me about poor
7: Cox. I don't see as it matters much to you, but I'll not say you nay.
0: He saw the solicitor for the Crown, and asked a few days to collect all his evidence, the functionary named Friday. This was conveyed next day to Cowan, and put him in a fever. It gave him a chance of keeping his own son ignorant, but no certainty. Ships were externally detained at Gravesend, waiting for a wind. There were no steam tugs then to draw them into blue water. Even going down the channel, letters boarded them if the wind slacked. He walked his room to and fro, like a caged tiger, day and night. Wednesday evening, Barrington came with the
3: news that his son was at the Star in Cornhill. I have got him to bed, and Lord forgive me, "'I have let him think he will see you before we go down to Gravesend to-morrow.'
4: "'Then let me see him,' said the miserable father. "'He shall know naught from me.' They
0: applied to the jailer, and urged that he could be a prisoner all the time, surrounded by constables in disguise. No, the jailer could not risk his place and an indictment. Bradbury was sent for, and made light of the
7: responsibility.' I brought him here, and will take him to the star, I and my fellows. Indeed, he will give us no trouble this time. Why, that would blow the gaff, and make the young gentleman fly to the whole thing.
3: It can only be done by authority, was the jailer's reply. Then, by authority, it shall be done, said Sir Robert. Mr Bradbury, have three men here with a coach at one o'clock, and a regiment, if you like, "'to watch the star.' "'Punctually at one came Barrington
0: with an authority. "'It was a request from the Queen. "'The jailer took it respectfully. "'It was an authority not worth a button, "'but he knew he could not lose his place "'with this writing to brandish at need. "'The father and son dined with the general at the star. "'Bradbury and one of his fellows "'waited as private servants. "'Other officers in plain clothes "'watched back and front.' At three o'clock father and son parted, the son with many tears, the father with dry eyes, but a voice that trembled as he blessed him. Young Cowan, now Morris, went down to Gravesend with his chief, the criminal, back to Newgate, respectfully bowed from the door of the star by landlord and waiters. At first he was comparatively calm, but as the night advanced became restless, and by and by began to pace his cell again like a caged lion. At twenty minutes past eleven a turnkey brought him a line. A horseman had galloped in with it from
3: Gravesend. A fair wind. We weigh anchor at the full tide. It is a merchant vessel, and the captain under my orders to keep offshore and take no messages. "'Farewell. Turn to the God you have forgotten. "'He alone can pardon you.'
0: "'On receiving this note, Cowan betook him to his knees. "'In this attitude the jailer found him when he went his round. "'He waited till the captain rose, "'and then let him know that an able lawyer was in waiting, "'instructed to defend him at Bow Street next morning. "'The truth is the females of the Swan "'had club money for these purposes.' Cowen declined to see him.
4: "'I thank you, sir,' said he. "'I will defend myself.' He said, however, he had a little favour to ask. "'I have been. Of late, much agitated and fatigued, "'and a sore trial awaits me in the morning. "'A few hours of unbroken sleep would be a boon to me.' "'The turnkeys must come in to see you are all right.' "'It is their duty.' but I will lie in sight of the door, if they will be good enough not to wake me. There can be no objection
7: to that, Captain, and I am glad to see you calmer. Thank you. Never calmer in my life. He got his pillow, set two
0: chairs, and composed himself to sleep. He put the candle on the table, that the turnkeys might peep through the door and see him. Once or twice they peeped in very softly, and saw him sleeping in the full light of the candle, to moderate which, apparently, he had thrown a white handkerchief over his face. At nine in the morning they brought him his breakfast, as he must be at Bow Street between ten and eleven. When they came so near him, it struck them he lay too still. They took off the handkerchief. He had been dead some hours. Yes, There, calm, grave, and noble, incapable, as it seemed, either of the passions that had destroyed him, or the tender affection which redeemed yet inspired his crimes, lay the corpse of Edward Cowan. Thus miserably perished a man in whom were many elements of greatness. He left what little money he had to Bradbury, and a note imploring him to keep particulars out of the journals, for his son's sake and such was the influence on Bradbury of the scene at the Star, the man's dead face, and his dying words, that though public detail was his interest, nothing transpired, but that the gentleman who had been arrested on suspicion of being concerned in the murder at the Swan Inn had committed suicide, to which was added by another hand. Cox, however, has the King's pardon, and the affair still remains shrouded with mystery. Cox was permitted to see the body of Cowan, and, whether the features had gone back to youth, or his own brain long sobered in earnest, had enlightened his memory, recognized him as a man he had seen committed for horse-stealing at Ipswich, when he himself was the mayor's groom, but some girl lent the accused a file, and he cut his way out of the cage.' Cox's calamity was his greatest blessing. He went into Newgate, scarcely knowing there was a God. He came out thoroughly enlightened in that respect by the teaching of the chaplain and the death of Cowan. He went in a drunkard. The noose that dangled over his head so long terrified him into lifelong sobriety, for he laid all the blame on liquor, and he came out as bitter a foe to drink as drink had been to him." His case excited sympathy. A considerable sum was subscribed to set him up in trade. He became a horse-dealer on a small scale, but he was really a most excellent judge of horses, and, being sober, enlarged his business, horsed a coach or two, attended fairs, and eventually made a fortune by dealing in cavalry horses under government contracts. As his money increased, his nose diminished, and when he died old and regretted only a pink tinge revealed the habits of his earlier life mrs martha Gust and barbara lamb were no longer sure but they doubted to their dying day the innocence of the ugly fellow and the guilt of the handsome civil spoken gentleman but they converted nobody to their opinion for they gave their reasons end of the knightsbridge mystery by charles reed
1: the characters were played by Dame Gust, Landlady of the Swan, Liz Haney.
9: Landlady of 13 Farringdon Street,
5: Anne Hope. Daughter of Landlady of 13 Farringdon Street, Lorraine Sayers. Barbara Lamb, Chambermaid, Wendy Barlow.
7: Bradbury, Bow Street Runner, Terry Ophila. Barrington, David
4: Ellison. Attorney, Clerk of Lorraine, counsel for the Crown. Lord's Butler, Mark Griffin, Sheriff,
6: Michael Berman, Captain Cowan, Bill Worrell, Judge, Ken Hope, Daniel Cox, Charles Barlow.
0: Narration by Edward Kirkby. This is an Audio Theatre UK production. For more information or to volunteer, please visit audiotheatre.uk.